0: Just to read from Micah chapter 6 and uh, the first eight verses. The Lord's case against Israel, his people. There's a series of questions here which are posed and responses that are made. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. Also, Aaron and Miriam, my people. Remember what Bala, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. That's in quotations. And then the response. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, and the exaggerated language continues even more. Thousands of rams. Ten thousand rivers of oil. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And so the answer, which is our verse for the year, and we're going to live with this and its implications, I hope, positively. He has showed you a man what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. There was a young preacher who had left seminary and he was going to his first pastorate in rural Kentucky, and he began his ministry on the first Sunday, full of enthusiasm, believing in what he was preaching. First Sunday, the sermon, he preached against smoking. At the end of the service, the elders came to him and took him aside and said, young man, you must realize that your congregation make their money from growing tobacco, He said, oh, I didn't realize that. Well, they said, you do now. So the following Sunday, he preached against drinking. The elders promptly informed him, young man, you have to realize something. That in this country, a third of the people distill whiskey. This is Jack Daniel's country. He said, I didn't realize that. Well, you do now. The third Sunday, he preached against gambling. The elders said to him, young man, this is Kentucky. A third of your congregation raise thoroughbred race horses." He said, I didn't know that either. Well, you do now. So, come the fourth Sunday, he preached a sermon, and his subject was the dangers inherent in deep-sea diving in international waters. (laughs) Yes. Now, sadly, that tends to happen. International waters are important, but they're of little consequence in rural Kentucky, are they? And, of course, the danger is that when we come to church, we might hear things that maybe are broadly interesting on a good day, but utterly irrelevant for the most part. And all that we're thinking about is what we're going to have for Sunday lunch. The danger is that if a speaker is irrelevant then in the course of time, the listener becomes indifferent. But the whole point of coming together and opening God's Word and reading it on a regular basis is the cumulative effect of that is to transform our lives, our thinking, our living and our relating. And I think that that is particularly so as we now open to perhaps what is not such a well-known part uh, of the Old Testament. Micah chapter 6 and... um, We're going to look at this together. If we want to experience, and I doubt that there's anybody here who doesn't, wants to experience uh, the blessing of a well-lived life, a life lived well for the glory of God, then I want to give you today the recipe for that, that will not only be a blessing to you, because the true definition of a life that is well-blessed, is that others benefit by living with you, rubbing shoulders with you, and find you to be a blessing as well. So, I want us to do just two things in the course of this sermon. The first, I want us to understand its original context. One of the good things about the Essential 100 is it gives us a big picture of the Bible and helps us to contextualize what is being said. The Bible can be a difficult book. Often it can be boring. So can preachers. So can Christians. So to get an edge about us is to say that when we have God's Word, that we believe it to be what it is essentially, the Word of God, as it impacts our lives. So that we can take this verse into 2010 with confidence and courage. And verse 8, of course, is the focal point. So to understand its original context and to apply its timely message for us personally and collectively. Okay, let's. Uh, it I, I, it is helpful to keep your Bibles open so that you can see now what's taking place. I want you to picture in your mind for a moment that here is Micah, the prophet, who is standing like a lawyer or a barrister. It's, it's, it's the language of the courtroom. And, and you see how it starts. This is a key to it. He says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your cause. Present your case now before the bar. That's how it begins. And he employs this sort of formal legal language in verse 1. But this is no ordinary court. And this is no ordinary judge. The judge is God Almighty. And Micah is his counsel And he is speaking on his behalf. And before the defendant is called to stand before the charges that are made, an impressive array of witnesses are summoned. No witnesses like this could be summoned in a human court. Metaphorically, as an illustration, speaking in this picture language, the council summons the mountains and the hills. Do you see that? the eternal hills and the mountains and the enduring foundations of the earth to hear the case that is to come to the court. God has a case against Israel, his covenant people. And before the members of the court, God makes his case concerning his chosen people and he does it like this. He gives the charge, listen well to this, in an implied way rather than an explicit way. It's the implication that God is bringing to them. Israel, this is very personal, Israel has grown tired of God, got fed up with God. And don't want him interfering in their lives. They've chosen to go their own way, because, of course, they know better. And why? God asks, have I let you down? Tell me, have I ever failed you? And, of course, then, from the history of the people, you get this summary. Don't forget And it's such an important thing for us as God's people to remember our roots, how God has blessed us and stop taking things for granted. My people have burdened me. How? And there's this interesting dialogue. Moses, the deliverer from Egypt. Miriam, the one who leads them in tambourine and dance. God speaking supernaturally through various people. Well, that's the setting. The defendant then addresses the court. Israel does not dispute the crime. Israel doesn't say this is not true. It admits its guilt. And yet their response is indicative of a deeper malaise. You have this in verse 6. It's a good question. All right then. These are the charges. What must I do to put things right? But the very phrasing of the question betrays the fact that the defendant still does not really understand what is the heart of the problem. Israel assumes that the solution To their misdemeanor is somehow found in their ritual activity. I mean, God is religious. If we fail him, let's have more religion. That's how people think today. And look at at the the reply. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? These are the accusations. Fair enough. Shall I bow down before the exalted God shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old Uh, am I going to be a bit more generous with my money a bit more serious perhaps I'm going to give until it really hurts me rather than just simply a token giving and then verse 7 will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, now it's the language of exaggeration Thousands of rams? Ten thousands of rivers of oil? What does God really want? What is this all about? And then, almost in its extreme form, and for a Jew to speak like this with this strong family connection, the firstborn is quite serious. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You notice how Micah uses this language of caricature almost and exaggeration Micah perceives that the people have lost the very essence of their faith outwardly they are attending church they're giving what they can they're doing their best they don't want to be extreme they want to enjoy the fruits of life and what Micah perceives is this, that the people have lost the very heart of their faith, the essence of their faith. And the ritual, and this can be true of us, it's alright to talk about them out there, but us in here. That the very ritual, it's not wrong in of itself, but it's never an end. And if it becomes an end in itself, we have lost something quite profound. And you might say, well, is there a mystery? Do I need uh, to pray more? Do I need to be filled with the Spirit? Do I need to become more charismatic? Do I need to become more Calvinistic? More, 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 of whatever, wherever I'm coming from. And it's to miss the point entirely. There's no deep mystery. And, and actually, it has nothing to do with more sacrifice and more offering or more ritual or more religion. Simply to think that God is religious, and therefore to be more religious is to please him, is to miss the point entirely. That's the context. Now, a lot more could be said about that. I'm sure you you would appreciate that. So, with that context, this is our verse. And it can apply as much to a company of Bible-believing people as to anybody. And the danger is when we read the Bible it says yes, that must have been very applicable then, but what does it say now? And what does it say to me this morning? Well, this is it. Here's the application of of a timely message. And we have it in verse 8. God still requires unequivocally three things of people who say they love him. God Requires these three things of people who say they love Him. I hope sometimes we're in a dilemma that we should pray more. I am. But if I think that doing that somehow is going to get me merit with God, I'm just as in difficulties as the people in Micah's day. Can't help but wonder sometimes how much do we really love Him? How much? So the application then is in these three pertinent statements for today. These are not just mere words. But they have power and potency to do something to change our lives. Let's look at them very quickly. And they're rather obvious, isn't it? The first is do justly. Do justly that no amount of extra temple activity, or perhaps you felt in the course of the notices that actually you could have come to prayer, but, well, it's easy to blame the weather. And you can't help but think that uh, perhaps my, my life is more motivated by what I should do than what I really want to do. But no amount of that extra activity could fill the vacuum of justice, While injustice resides in the heart either of a collective community or an individual worshipper, no amount of temple worship then or church worship now would be acceptable to God. And this becomes rather radical, doesn't it? God is just. And justice was a notable absence of the people of God in the way that they lived, in the way they worked, in the way they related to their colleagues. It was a culture of injustice, no less so than ours. And when in Rome, do what the Romans do. But God is just. Justice was notable absence when Micah gives this verse. Verse. Just turn to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, the summing up of perhaps the most um, influential sermon of all times, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Just look at this for a moment, just to see the way Jesus sums up when we think of this theme of justice. It's a good sermon, and it's over, but what is its application? Yes, I know what you're saying, but I'm not quite sure what you're meaning. Well, be in no doubt about it when Jesus gives the summing up. Verse 21. It's quite remarkable. The Beatitudes. We're called not to worry. We're to love our enemies. Eye for an eye and all of that. And how we relate. And then the summing up. Matthew 7:21. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Back to the three statements. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or preach sermons and in your name drive out demons with miraculous power? That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Then I will tell you plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, and it comes back to the same thing. It's absolutely basic, isn't it? If anyone hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against the house. It did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. It's a dodgy foundation. And it, it, it proves to be calamitous. See the point? We're not perfect. But in given situations... our our conviction that Jesus Christ has called us and forgiven us or to make us to be people who have a sense of the rightness and the justice in given situations. Doing what is right is the clarion call of the people of God, whatever the cost. Some people will say, where I work, doing what is right is very costly might cost me my job, even. Well, are you up for it? And it's all very well, but if you have a mortgage and family and all of that, it's not for the faint-hearted, is it? Doing what is right. It is, if you like, the tension that we face. You might go to some churches, and they might for instance, say, preach a social gospel. And then you can go to other churches that are so spiritually intense, almost to the point of being exclusive, that they have withdrawn entirely from from society. But the the point of this verse is that it's both and they are dovetailed together. How are we with with a a relationship with, with grandchildren, at work and in the community to keep our ethical edge sharp not to be blunted by the fact that everybody else is doing it and to keep my integrity sound do justly that's what he's told you love mercy look at the next sentence actually literally means covenant love which God will not break it's loving kindness. Now, again, one of the, the principal attributes of God, the essence of God is this, that he is love. God is love. And that finds its expression in us, and it is the divine imperative. To be unloving is to be unacceptable. It's a big ask, isn't it? Because ours is a very selfish, egocentric culture, as then. He has shown you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Do what is right. Love mercy. Now, if I'm speaking to you today, and I don't know, let's suppose you've got a grudge in your heart. Maybe it's a family thing. Maybe it goes back a long time. You see, here it is. Get rid of that. You might even say to somebody, look, I forgive you. And somebody will say, well, I don't accept it. Such is human nature. All right, you've done what you can. As much as it lies within your power, you do what you can. Love mercy. For our society, and sadly even churches, can be shot through with bitterness and resentment. Love mercy. Loving kindness is the hallmark Of the covenant people. Do you remember the way Jesus put it with his disciples? I give you a new command. It's been called the eleventh, isn't it? The great ten, here's the eleventh. Wrap them in this. This new command. Love one another as I have loved you. And think of the cross as it's shadowing the verse. By this will all men know not that you are religious or that you go to church or you say your prayers or you give a tenth of your income, but they will know that you are my disciples because you really do love one another. Love mercy. Love and kindness. Though it's related to justice, it is. But it seems to go beyond justice. Justice is what I ought to do. Love is what I'm resolved to do. I'm resolved to do. It gives when it is undeserved. Just the way we've been forgiven and it's been undeserved. And it has its roots in grace. What you have in the Bible is covenant love, steadfast love. Then brought personally in Jesus Christ. Grace. The challenge of our faith is to cultivate a kind heart. Loving kindness. A kind heart. It's very humbling these past four or five days to see and very wonderful the milk of human kindness as people. Have gone to ask elderly folk, How are you? Can I get something for you? Now, let me ask you, Have you done that? And if I make you feel guilty, well, of course, it's easy to induce that, but maybe it's deserved. Maybe you're so wrapped up in yourself and all that you have to do that you just haven't got time. Well, you see, this is what it means to love mercy. This is the blessing of a life well lived, and I think it's in short supply. Don't think about anybody else now. No, no, we're not into that. I must think of myself. You must think of yourself. The challenge for our faith is to cultivate a kind heart, not a critical spirit. Don't complain what people don't do. Be thankful for what they do. Do justly. Love, mercy, and finally, walk humbly. Walk humbly. This is not the walk of shame, is it? Walk humbly. It's the great counterculture. You're going in a different direction. Make humility something that is attractive and beautiful and costly. Is it not true that within every one of us is a battle every day that rages between the ugly Sin of pride. And at the same time, the rare virtue of humility. There, it's just lurking under the surface all the time. Ready always to rear its ugly, ugly head when we think about situations in which we find. But of course it's the test of grace. Simply to shrug your shoulders and say, well this is, this is the person I am. Well that's obvious. Isn't good enough, is it? It isn't. And you notice carefully from the verse, it isn't just, okay, from now on, let's walk humbly. No, no, it's not that. Look, walk humbly with your God. For a moment, let's forget about justice and mercy. Let's think about our relationship with the Lord himself. Walk with him. Take him with you into your work. Take him into your social activities. Would he be embarrassed? Would you? See, it's not simply walk humbly, try better. Walk with your God, your daily walk. And doesn't this go hand and glove with justice and love? So here is this, you see, it reminds me of the woman of Samaria. Do you remember she came to the well and, and uh, she gets to, Jesus starts talking to her. She was horrified because so they didn't do that. And immediately, she, what does she want to do? Talk religion. You worship at this mountain, I'm in that mountain. You have this view, I got that view. And Jesus didn't get embroiled in that. It's part of our backgrounds. All right. And somehow all, every generation has got to cut through all of this cumulative religion and come straight to the fact my relationship with God. Hand in glove, justice and love. And walking humbly with God. Is he good company? Is he a good companion? This threefold cord is not easily broken. And you notice as we sum it up. The first you see. How all encompassing it is. The first is to do with our actions. Actions are important. They speak louder than words. Of course they do. What what are my actions really like? And secondly, my affections. It's, the Christian faith ultimately is a thing of the heart as well as the mind. We've won many arguments and, and, and we've forfeited people's spiritual well-being. My actions, my affections, and perhaps even more profoundly than these, my attitudes. What is my attitude to, to life, to my work? to my parents, to my children, to to my fellow worshipper. What is it, deep down? Have you come into this year and brought all that stuff, the resentment and hurts and misunderstandings, and and you're like a dog with a bone? You will not let go. Attitudes hold you back, pull you down, draw you into negative Emotion and discussion. He has shown you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God.